and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you're like me, money can be tight. I'm not rolling in it and yes, that's probably why I've got long hair. Save money wherever you can, right? So when it comes to binoculars, money is one of the restrictions. I don't always have the total amount up front and I could probably just pay it in dribs and drabs. Well, that's where Leica helped me. Leica have created a new way to shop. Introducing a 0% APR and a 9.9% APR on a large selection of items. Available online, this new program guarantees peace of mind when purchasing your bit of Leica kit. You even get to pick the right financing plan for you. You can read more about this program on the Leica Online Store UK. And now, on with the show. Guess who's back? Back again. Ryan's back. Tell a friend who likes nature and podcasts and likes to... Le- it's petered out. It's petered out, guys. Guess who's back? Into the Wild is back. Whoop, whoop. Can I get some cheers? I'm really hoping Oscar's put some cheers in here. Thank you. Thank you. We are back. Welcome to Into the Wild, everyone. I am your host, Ryan Dalton. I took a month off to relax and get my breath back. <laughs> and I think I've done the job. Woo! It feels like so long since I've spoken to you all. Um, I hope you're all well. I hope you've enjoyed the the month of, well, rain. We've had heatwave and rain. This is it's Britain, isn't it? That's what we've been doing. But I hope you're all well. I feel like it, that month, I blinked and I've missed it. I think I got into bed and then I woke up and now here we are recording episodes again. <laughs> but it is lovely, lovely to be back. What have I been getting up to? Let's fill you all in. I went to Sherwood Forest, went up to Sherwood Forest for a few days. I went up to be Indy Green and Lucy Lapwing. I went, well, of course, we went bird spotting. We did night walks in Sherwood Forest. We did moth traps um, and I did loads of touristy stuff up there as well. I met up with Adam Hart, Professor Adam Hart, to start the plans with our on-location episode special in Namibia. Hello, that's exciting. Um, I also met up with Emma, who was one of the hosts of Thought It's Earth Pod. I met Oscar. Oscar, my editor. We actually met up, <laughs> which was lovely. I've been So as you can tell, I've been busy, basically. I've been busy running around. I didn't really rest at all, but I'm excited to be back bringing you some brand new episodes. What can you expect from Into the Wild coming up in... Um, well, the second part of 2021. We've got, as always, exciting guests talking about a range of topics from wildlife, conservation and nature, as we always do. And I'm sure along the way, I've got some new features coming into the episodes, um, which involve you lot as well. You lot will be writing into me. However, we are back for the current format, which means it's time for 60 Second Nature News. Now, you new listeners might not know what this is, but 60 Second Nature News is where I, Ryan Dalton, read out four positive wildlife or conservation stories in 60 seconds. Now, the old listeners, the people that have been with me from day one, my OGs, will know I never do it in 60 seconds. But let's give this a go. I've got four stories. I've not done this for one month. It's going to be rusty. 60 second nature news. Let's go. First of all, the big butterfly count is underway from Butterfly Conservation and you lot can all get involved by simply downloading the Big Butterfly Count app. 
Set your locations and start inputting a list of butterflies and moths that you see. So far already 751 Jersey Tiger moths have been spotted in the UK which is epic and this kind of citizen data collection is a great way to help find trends and support conservation efforts. Elin Wildlife Group have successfully released 25 harvest mice back into the wild and their captive colony have had their very first babies. Congratulations, well done to Elin Wildlife Group. Rhino and elephant poaching numbers have declined throughout Namibia. From 101 elephants poached in 2016 to only 12 in 2020 and only 4 this year, the lowest number in 5 years for this time period, and only 9 rhinos have been poached which is the lowest number for the same time period in 8 years. Namibia are doing pretty good. And finally, Norfolk Wildlife Trust tweeted to announce that they have been reintroducing the northern pool frog back to their last known home, Thompson Common. Presumed extinct in 1995 after breeding site water levels were too low, but thanks to captive breeding and the restoration of suitable habitat, the northern pool frogs are coming back to Norfolk. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News, I think. Was that 60 seconds? Who will ever know? Right, okay, that's that done. I don't think I've spoken this much. All I mean, that's definitely a lie. <laughs> Not spoken this much into a microphone um, for a month. Right, okay, let's get on with today's show. Today's guest is someone that should have had their own episode for a long time. I know that, she knows that. She's been on the show before, but as a panel, I've never spoken to her individually, and it was a great opportunity to get to chat to the wonderful Dr. Amy Dickman. If you don't know Amy Dickman, if you do not follow her on Twitter, please follow this incredible person. I find her so inspirational for what Amy stands up for, how far she is willing to go to challenge people and the status quo with what they believe should be the way and she is, you know, fighting for the rights of wildlife and communities and people in uh, the ranges that she knows best, which is uh, the ranges of Africa. So what were we talking about? Now, Amy knows her stuff when it comes to a lot of animals, but she knows her stuff with lions. So we did an episode about lions. You know what? It's very rare we just actually speak about an animal. So we spoke about the basics with lions, how they live, how they work, how they eat, how they work in a pride, all that kind of stuff. But we also, I could not let Amy go until we spoke a little bit at the end about trophy hunting. We've spoke about it on the show before. We've dedicated an episode to it. We've done a recap of it but I also wanted to get Amy's one-on-one -on -one kind of view with what needs to go forward. So at the end, just a warning for you, there's a little bit of trophy hunting chat, just to brace yourselves, but it's good. It's a good chat. I think it's very informative and very insightful. So I'm going to shut my mouth now and introduce you to the episode, the wonderful chat, which is titled Lions with Amy Dickman. Amy, this is long overdue. We've done an episode with you before, but it was, you shared it with Adam Hart. But this is the first time we're getting to chat just me and you, or just you, about about you and about your <laughs> nature love. How are you? Welcome to Into the Wild. <laughs> Thank you very much. Lovely to be here without Adam trying to hog all the uh, airwaves. So yeah, lovely to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he listens to this one. I feel like we're just going to be slagging him off throughout the show. <laughs> exactly. Um, how's your day been, mate? Has it been good? Yeah, been very good. Actually got into the office for once and met with a colleague at sort of a distanced what? level. So yeah, it was cool. A huge amount of social interaction. So I'm very excited by it. Oh, it's weird, isn't it? How's it feeling? Was it a good feeling to go back into like normal work? Yeah, really good. Good to be able to brainstorm things and just, yeah, just have that human interaction again that isn't some squealing six-year-old. So yeah, much as I love them, but seriously. <laughs> it's weird that the things that we thought we'd never miss, now they're coming back. 
we're like, oh, this is lovely. I know, going to the office on a on a Tuesday or whatever day it is, I don't even know anymore. But yeah, I didn't think you'd look forward to that much. My mum said to me the other day, what did she say? She was like, do you know what I can't wait for? She went, I can't wait to order a drink at the bar. <laughs> it's true. I was like, <laughs> what a specific thing you've missed. <laughs> table service just not cutting it. It's just, no, no. We all we always like long for table service and now it's forced upon us. We don't like it. But anyway... This is not a catering podcast. <laughs> this is a wildlife podcast. <laughs> so welcome to the show, mate. It's a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to be talking about lions today. Of course we're going to be talking about lions. We've got Amy Dickman on the show. No point talking about jellyfish, is there? We're going to be talking about lions. <laughs> Let's start by getting everyone clued up. Amy, can you start by telling us who you are and what is it you do? Yep. So my name's Amy Dickman. I'm the Kaplan Senior Research Fellow in Wildcat Conservation at Oxford University. And through that, I am the joint CEO of an organisation called Lion Landscapes. So a big grassroots lion conservation project. And specifically through Oxford, I have run the Ruaha Carnival Project, which has sort of been its own entity. And now we've joined forces with Lion Landscapes to create this bigger collaborative lion conservation project. So it's very exciting. That's amazing. How have you found the last year with the work that you do? being solely in the UK has it made some of your work a lot harder it's been really challenging it's the longest time I've been in the UK for probably 20 years oh, wow. <laughs> um it's the longest time I've spent with my children since they were born so all of these things <laughs> <laughs> I've realized they're quite hard work when you're with them all the time so <laughs> um yeah it gives me real insights into my god how amazing my husband's been actually keeping all this stuff going while I flit around the world but obviously it has been challenging and not being able to spend as much time in the field and and really sort of work there because I think that understanding and that daily sort of what's actually happening on the ground really helps you know ground all your conservation activities and keeps you really connected but so that's been challenging for me personally and not getting to go to Tanzania and enjoy all the exciting part of the work But on the other hand, it's also really sort of enabled the teams there to sort of really come into their own and show how much they can do without me kind of getting in the way. So it's been really great for the organisation, actually, to show that they can continue brilliantly and really sort of get really empowered and really advance under their own steam. And that's been really exciting. That's really cool. It's like a manager taking a year off, isn't it? I know. I realise I'm not quite sure what I do. (laughs) (laughs) You've made yourself redundant, mate. (laughs) <laughs> never do that <laughs> so it's I've, I've known you for a little bit now and I obviously know and you're on this show so it's clear that you're a wildlife and you're a nature lover but how did your love for the natural world and for animals and wildlife and conservation begin for you honestly it has been it has existed for as long as I can remember and particularly around big cats so my mother's got a picture of me with my mm. younger sister and I'm meant to be helping give her a bottle or something she's just some lolling around baby And I'm completely ignoring her and not supporting her head, not doing anything. She's practically slipping off the sofa. And I am reading the big book of big cats. And that's that's the only thing I'm I'm immersed in. So mum said that was just characteristic right from the start. And actually, um, my brother and I found a um, little memory box that we'd buried in the garden when I was Mm. 10 and he was 12. And in it, it said what we wanted to be doing at the unimaginable age of 30 at that point. And mine only had two things on it. <laughs> I wasn't very ambitious, but uh, the two things that mine said was that I wanted to be studying lions in the Serengeti and I wanted to have a zebra-striped Land Rover. So those are my two life goals. Have you got the Land Rover? I believe I'm about to get the Land Rover. <laughs> get out. Are you actually? I, actually? I was like, I've got to do it. I've got <laughs> You're going to do it. be driving <laughs> a zebra-striped <laughs> Land Rover. I'll send you a picture. <laughs> Absolutely, I want to go for a spin in it. That's what I want to do. <laughs> exactly. 
Is that going to be in England or is that going to be in Africa you own this? Well, I have like seven Land Rovers as part of the project in Africa, but, you know, spending Mm. the time, you know, making them look like zebra stripe and all the rest of it uh, is a bit pointless (laughs) over there. Really just getting them to work would be a real win most of the time. Much as I love Land Rovers, yeah, they uh, will get you through things, but huge amounts of repairs. So, uh, no, we've never painted those there. So I might be doing it here in the UK with a defender here. So that'll be fun. I was trying to think if the zebra stripe was a way to get the lions closer to you in Africa for research. <laughs> like maybe they just see the Land Rover and go, hey lads, let's go over. And you're like, yes. That is, that is a huge zebra. <laughs> That's a huge zebra with some ticks on top of it by the looks of it. But let's go and have a look. Exactly. So I don't quite know where it all came from really, but I mean, I loved the zoo when I was little. I used to love going and mm. anytime I grew up in Devon, there was nothing wild there at all. So you know, we used to, I used to drag my parents at any point to the zoo and stare at the big cats. So just really fascinated from the beginning, really, and loved particularly big cats was always the thing really for me. That's why I'm looking forward to talking about big cats um, with you today, because I, similar to you, uh, really was fascinated by cats when I was studying. Really fat cat behaviour, you know, just all the big cats and stuff. And then when I worked, my first, you know, practical role in a zoo was with big cats. Yeah. And it was just... I, I, this is why I'm looking forward to talking to you about it, I think, because I think I share that love with them. But I guess my first question specifically, what is it about lions you love? It, is there something that stands out about them? It's really hard to answer that question because there's nothing intrinsically amazing that stands out about lions. I mean, I worked with cheetahs for six years and leopards a little bit in that in Namibia. So that was my first proper job yeah. out in Africa at the Cheetah Conservation Fund. And cheetahs are incredible. You know, you watch them hunt and you just think, wow, there is nothing more incredible than that moment when a cheetah is going full out on a sprint and you can see all that evolution to this pinnacle of speed. And so you can totally admire that and think it's amazing. And similarly with leopards, you watch them leap up a tree with an impala, you watch that power and that force, and they're so beautiful. And, you know, you can really see what's so attractive about a leopard. A lion doesn't quite have any of that. You know, it lies around (laughs) most of the time. It's kind of brownish, tawny, and they don't seem to do a lot for most of the time. But yet still... For as long as we go back in history, lions have captivated people, I think, more than mm. almost any other species. You know, you look at the art that was, you know, the first figurative art was carved out of woolly mammoth ivory was the head of a lion. You look at all the tableaus of cave paintings of lions and yeah. they're the most common national animals. So there's something about them that I think is hard to explain. But for me, I think it's that power and that real essence of wilderness. And much as they loll around and they don't look that impressive when they sit up and they look at you in the eye and you think it just strips back everything and you look and think that is an ultimate predator. And there is something so yeah. wild about them that I think is just really captivating. Do you think, like, cause something I found, and this I've never seen them in the wild, but something about working with them in captivity, there was something about the way they sounded. It was the noise that they made that was so, so deep and loud. Like Definitely. you almost felt the vibration more than you heard the noise. Oh, 100%. I say if you're lying in a tent on the ground and a lion roars close by, you feel it more than here. It goes right yeah. the way through you. And there's just something that chills you about feeling. Mm-hmm. I think it takes us back to when we were prey and they were the ultimate predators. Yeah. And there is that sort of realigning, realizing there's something out there that is so much more powerful than you. And of course, that's true for bears and tigers and everything. But for me, that connection with lions has just always been there. They're absolutely incredible animals. So let's. Right, let's let's get down to the basic about lions. Right, first start, how many species of lion are there? So there's only one species of lions, but the two subspecies of lions. Cool. So there's the African lion and the Asiatic lion. And where can we well, I was gonna say where can we find them? But <laughs> I think I Amy, I think I know the answer. <laughs> I, I think I'm gonna go give you a shot here. <laughs> I've got a feeling that the African lion may be found maybe found throughout Africa. 
That's good. You are good. They said you're yeah, a pro rider. Right, you're right there. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, whilst I'm riding high on this, is the Asiatic line. Oh, come on. Can you find them throughout Asia? <laughs> That's actually South America. But so close. Oh, no. <laughs> no, exactly. So there's only a very small remnant population of Asiatic lions left uh, in India. So that's a much, much smaller population, somewhere around sort of 600 lions. Whereas, you know, m- when most people think of lions, they'll probably be thinking of African lions. And those uh, still range through over 20 countries throughout Africa and sort of sub-Saharan Africa. And yeah, but they have contracted a lot. So they, they used to range extensively throughout Africa and actually beyond. But mm. now they've actually contracted down to less than 10% of their historic range. So they haven't... Oh, wow. Yeah, they have really been under serious pressure. And the ones in... And I'm going to actually try and show off a bit of knowledge now. Although I'm definitely going to mispronounce the name of the national park. I I think in India, is it the Gear National Park? Gear, yeah. Gear National I think it's Gear. That's how I've always pronounced it. I could be feel free for the Indians to tell me I was pronouncing it wrong, but I've always heard it as (laughs) Gear. I've done the British thing where I see a G and I go J. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It could be Gear. Yeah, I I think you're probably right with Gear National Park. Um, when I worked with Asiatic lions, there was only about two to three hundred. What's what are the population trends looking like now? Yeah, interesting. For the Asiatic lions, they seem to be rebounding to some extent. So I think in the news last year, I think they said they went up about twenty nine percent from the previous census they'd done. I don't know the time mm. interval there. But they seem to be going up for the Asiatic lions. Of course, it's a very small population that you're dealing with anyway. Yeah. And the problem there will be that you know limited habitat, human wildlife conflict. So there's probably a limit to where it can expand, but it's had quite intensive and, of course, successful conservation work there. So that's exciting to see some success stories, you know, for lions. And unfortunately, in marked contrast, unfortunately, to some of the African countries that have got lions. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question, was how has the range changed for both species? So I guess you you said we're, uh, for the African lion, they've gone down to about 10% of their original was that range or population was the 10%? They now exist in about 8% of their historic range. So they've really contracted wow. down lots. And we don't know how many lions there ever used to be. I mean, of course, historically, there would have been hundreds of thousands of lions. But mm. they're very hard to count for a start. And there's been, <laughs> despite all the effort, it's actually really hard to get a decent sort of estimate of the numbers of lions. So we've got some idea that the best guess is that in 21 years, um, for sort of the early 1990s, sort of 2014, they dropped by about 43% in terms of numbers from the populations wow. that were monitored. And those populations, if they're well monitored, are also likely to be the ones that that probably have the more conservation attention. So we really don't know what's happening in the more remote uh, areas where lions are. But it's, you know, they are definitely on a declining trajectory. And that's, yeah, that's a huge issue for all of us that find it so inspiring. Apex predator, how powerful are these animals? Well, interestingly, individually, I mean, they're hugely powerful. You wouldn't want to take one in a fight, despite that weird... Uh, <laughs> you sure? <laughs> well, despite that weird thing that went around on Twitter, like loads of people thought they could take on a lion. But um, so <laughs> they are hugely powerful. I mean, my God, they are, you know, they weigh like sort of 30 stone. They are very powerful animals, of course, you know, but equally, they're not quite as powerful as you'd think by their weight. I mean, if you look at mm. their sort of bite force, there are some breeds of dog that actually have a stronger bite force than a lion. So really? you also don't want to mess with those dogs. I know you do sort of dog walking I mean, stuff. I I've probably been bitten by one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But things like the Kangals, interesting, the dogs that we work with as part of the livestock guarding dogs, they've yeah. been reported to have a stronger bite force than a lion. Never tried the two, wouldn't want to try it. But equally, it's not so much about necessarily the force of the individual animal, but the real strength of lions comes in the fact that, of course, they exist in prides for most of the time. And then that collective mm. power that they have, and they can bring down giraffe, they can bring down elephant. Um, they will specialise often in things like buffalo. So they're hugely powerful as a force. And that's something that really makes them stand out, particularly from the rest of the cats. 
uh, in that collective power that they have. Is there, the way they hunt, how complex is that hunting skill? Is it kind of like just run and chase and grab? Or is there kind of a more complex thought process uh, I, I don't know how much to give them a thought process. Because I think like in scamming, yeah, you sorry, watch I don't, them. I don't mean they've got no pad no, no. and pens. But... No, you truly, you can watch them. Sometimes they do seem a bit like they haven't really thought it through, and you can watch and think that's not going to work. <laughs> but equally, it depends very much on the group, and it depends what they're hunting as well. So, for instance, in Oaxaca, they will often hunt giraffes. So they can have huge prides mm. there, sometimes up to thirty animals, because they're specialising on very oh, wow. big prey, and particularly giraffes. When it comes to hunting a giraffe, they are quite specialised. So, for instance, there'll be certain animals that take the lead there. There'll be certain animals that tend to be the ones that jump up. There'll be others that will be driving it towards, for instance, say a dry sand river and a gully. And if they get it into a gully and it tries to step up out of that gully, then it finds it very difficult, will often trip, and then they have that advantage. So there is a so behaviour element there that's pretty, yeah, it, it, they've honed it down. So they've pretty much got that going. There are other times when you watch them sort of chase after a warthog that's just appeared behind a bush and they really they just really mess it up and you think there wasn't a thought and that was that <laughs> so very varied <laughs> i was wondering because you, know, you hear about the hunting dogs um like you know the kind of the the communication but i guess you don't really because you only ever see the chase on like documentaries you only ever see the lion chase you very rarely see the again i'm going to use the phrase thought process but we, we i'm yeah. using layman terms here but that's that kind no, of no, definitely definitely you know the the kind of yeah the strategy that you the see the strategy that's the word i knew there was a word <laughs> I was like, i'm gonna get the word in a minute uh, strategy <laughs> well, that's what i meant totally so lions will have a very different strategy from something like wild dogs which are these sort of coursing predators so they will run mm. through a bush and they will they'll have much more of a sort of a group cohesion about that whereas lions tend to be more ambush Hunters, and they will watch and wait near something like a waterhole or in thick bush for prey to come past. And then they'll do a short chase. But so there's less time for that real coordination that you see with things like African wild dogs, which are incredible to watch hunt. Really amazing. Yeah. Um, but the seal is, I mean, you will see that. And in people who really study individual prides a lot will say that if they're going after say a buffalo, then there'll be certain individuals that tend to be good at hunting buffalo. Whereas if they're going after a giraffe, it'll be other ones. So, you know, there seem to be some specialities within them. And certainly that social behaviour is another thing that people find fascinating about lions, because it just makes it more interesting often to, yeah. to study a social animal and to look at all those dynamics that are going on. How does the pride work? So obviously, I mean, I know, you know, male lion, your group of females, is that how it works? Do you, But do you have males that stay there for a certain amount of time do the males just mature and move on are they kicked out is it is it kind of led by the female can the females take over the male if they want to <laughs> well so all of those things do happen it's a very dynamic process and it also varies mm. quite a lot across different populations so what happens in one group may not happen in another place just because of the resource dynamics but oh. in general you will have the core of the pride is the group of females so that becomes the real sort of central point about it all and then when mm. they have um young and often they will have young that are together and they will have this sort of collective nursing so young will come and nurse off any female that's uh, that's got milk for instance so there's a lot of collective rearing of young and a very much a cohesion around those females and young the young males that are born into that will be kicked out mm. at about three so they don't want to obviously have the inbreeding there and then you will have groups of lions so the male lions will then be attached to prides but often they can be with more than one group of females so it isn't necessary that this group of males is always with this group of females so the oh, males okay. can go from between different sort of prides of females. And there's a lot of sort of dynamism, as I said, between those sort of dynamics. Mm. Um, but the males will have a fairly short time with the females. So, you know, depending on the males, it may only be a couple of years. They want to be to have taken over the pride and then stay with those females and enable sort of defend that resource 
long enough for their cubs to get to be independent. And then if a group of males takes over, you know, hopefully, particularly if it's a two or three or four or more, you know, male lions, then they've got a decent chance of sort of repelling any incoming males. But when those pride males get um, sort of weaker and they're sort of ousted by another group of males coming in, then you tend to have the infanticide of any dependent cubs there. And so what the males are just trying to do is hold on basically long enough so that they can complete that whole reproductive cycle and get their cubs to maturity themselves. Wow, it's so complex, isn't it? Well, it's so complicated. It's fascinating to see. I mean, you talked about the mean intelligence or thought process. I remember being in Botswana once and watching a takeover. It's the most fascinating time. And there's all this stuff yeah. going on with the takeovers. And you ask about the females. The females can drive away males to some extent. They can be very active in their own defence, particularly of their cubs. Mm. And at this point, the, the incoming males had won. So there was this takeover. And this one female was heavily, heavily pregnant, literally about to give birth. And so then she came into estrus. So she came into season. And suddenly she was breeding with the males, the very new males that were there. And within like two days, she had had her cubs. And you could watch later on when these males interacted with these cubs. They were like, check me out. I am the man. And you're like, you're so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it's like mate you want a dna on that i know oh, seriously and he was like i am good <laughs> so i fell on like serengeti Jer- jeremy kyle like. i know exactly exactly so it's just there's so many things that can happen that are just adaptive in that way it's really fascinating and th- so you said there was like um prides that were specialized in taking down giraffe and stuff which is incredible because giraffe are like I don't think until you've seen a giraffe up close, you really understand how big they are and how powerful they are or can be as an animal. Um, I mean, the main prey is going to be, I guess, antelope and buffalo. But what else can lions take down? They can take in a massive range of things. So almost anything out there, they can take everything from like, you know, you know, you see them prey on things like tortoises sometimes, which isn't very fun for anyone because it's incredibly slow. What an absolute boring documentary scene that would be. You never see that, do you, on the uh, blue chip films, the tortoise hunt? (laughs) No, you don't. Incredibly slow burn. (laughs) Exactly. And it genuinely is because they'll play with them for days, then they'll gradually chew through the carabas and they'll eat them. So literally everything from the smaller animals right the way through to elephants to giraffes, we said. So they've got a huge range out there that they can take. And that is another thing that makes them relatively successful because depending on the area, depending on the time of year, they can... You know, they can adapt to the different types of prey species. And with that, the, there's also changed in the pride dynamics. So rather than going from a big group of animals together, if they're in an area or in a season where there are giraffe around, if suddenly they're preying on much smaller animals, then you get the smaller groups of sort of a fission of the prize and smaller groups around mm-hmm. hunting sort of smaller prey. So they're very adaptable in that way. I think one thing we forget, and I think you're going to agree with this straight away, is that people live around these animals. So these aren't, you know, the, the wilds of Africa are not just for large animals completely yeah. for people as yep, well 100%. so how much and this I, I guess i'll ask the question for asiatic lions as well but for african lions how much conflict is there with people especially when you're looking at like i guess prey and food as well for livestock and people oh, definitely there's huge amounts of conflict this is one of the big threats to lions definitely you look at that sort of contraction mm. of their wild habitat but another huge threat is this conflict with people because lions do pose a real threat to people and to their livestock and in our area when we were doing this work in southern Tanzania, we found that people were losing almost 20% of their annual cash income because of attacks oh, from wow. lions or lions and other carnivores, but primarily lions and hyenas on their livestock. So it can be really detrimental. Also, there's, yeah. especially in southern Tanzania, you can have dozens, sometimes over 100 people killed a year by lions. So Craig Packer had looked at that work. And 
it's not even if that happens. I mean, it's terrible and it's awful and it's really appalling when when it happens, but the, just the fear of having that happen, whether it's to your livestock mm. or to your family members, to yourself, that fear is something that drives a lot of conflict, quite rightfully. You know, none of us would willingly necessarily have lions wandering around our back gardens. <laughs> no. And, no. no. And I think, I'm annoyed when the domestic cat comes in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Exactly. And so you've, we've got to really take that step and think this is such an incredible predator and so powerful, but... As you say, they are living in landscapes where they are shared often with people and where those people, you know, have been there since time immemorial. So, you know, since humanity yeah. evolved, people have been in Africa. So we need to respect the fact that an awful lot of this is shared space. And how do we come up with a, with solutions so that people and lions can coexist in a way that doesn't ask too much of the people who are there? Because it is a huge burden and one that I think gets under realised in terms of how significant it is. How do people, I mean, what is the reaction currently? Is it kind of, you know, and I'm not, you know, we're not going to tar people with the same brush. For, but is there a lot of kind of just random killings? Is it to protect yourselves, like, and protect your, whether your family, your livestock, or your business? Is it just kind of like, well, you know, reduce the predators? Definitely, there is a lot of killing of these animals that goes on. So when I started our project down in Oaxaca, huge amounts of killing. We dealt with over 26 lions killed very close to one village just on the corner of a national park. Wow. And so, and these were often pregnant females. They were young animals. They mm. were. Half of them were females, which is the quickest way of driving a population down is if you take away the females. And so when you looked at why these animals were being killed, the, the majority were done either to protect people or from, and their livestock from um, these animals or to retaliate for direct killings yeah. so that it had already happened. There was also a strong element of cultural killing where in the tribes that we were working with, there was still that element of if you kill a lion, you can get prestige and you can get gifts from your community. So it was a way of getting wealth mm. and status with them. So there are lots of mixed motivations around it, but... I think it's understandable that unless you're getting a real benefit from living with these animals, the risks aren't worth it for many local people. So the amount of killing is high and often it's very understandable. So I think it's really important to put yourself in those shoes and try and think about what on earth it must be like to live with animals like that. What do you think the best, I guess this is this is a <laughs> this is a weight to put on onto you, Amy. <laughs> what do you think the best way to address it is? I think the best way by far is just tilting that cost-benefit ratio. So I often equate it to cars. Okay, if you were a, an alien mm. and you came down from space and you said, why on earth are you not all dealing with these crazy metal creatures that race around your roads and kill people? And not only are you putting up with them, you pay to have them there. And so the reason that we put up with this, which they are dangerous, is because we choose to have them and they make our lives easier. So I think we've got to think there will always be costs of living alongside species like lions. But if you can make the benefits outweigh the costs. And critically, if you can ensure that people are choosing to have them there, they have an active role in that, then that's a way of ensuring that people really feel that this is something that they choose as part of their landscape. And that's, I think, the way that we've got to move forward. And that's something we've done at the project level by really engaging people mm. in delivering benefits that are closely tied to the presence of that wildlife and making sure that we address all those elements of killing. And you can really see a turnaround and a, a real change where people are interested and want to have these animals around. So it can definitely happen even for really dangerous species like lions. Do you think that the human kind of lion conflict is one of the biggest threats facing their populations? Yes, definitely. So there's habitat loss, there's loss of prey with bushmeat snaring, and sometimes you can have uh, killing of lions through that. But conflict is a major, major issue as well, because a lot of their range is still outside formerly protected areas. And mm. so conflict on those unprotected land and also around the edges of protected areas is really a major threat. And how does this, is this the same in Asia? I guess we're talking about an even smaller 
habitat range. So is this Definitely. a greater threat for Asiatic lions? There is certainly a lot of conflict from people I know who work in Asia. They'll say, you know, the conflict is a major issue there. Also that, as you say, that habitat issue is there's so many people that you're dealing with. There's so sort mm. of, there's so much competition for space in in India that is more extreme than in most places in Africa. So you're dealing with all those things probably to even to a more intense degree. And especially with where can they go if that population is growing? So how do you deal with that without ending up in more and more human carnival conflict? So these are challenging things to deal with at the kind of landscape level that you need to look at it for. Um, I'm going to move on to our next question. Are you ready for this? I am. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> I, now I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to ask, we're going to talk about trophy hunting. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I'm making it into such a pedestal thing. Um, so you're open online um, a lot about talking about trophy hunting and mm-hmm. open discussion um, to the extent that you're, you know, you will put yourself in discussions where you, I would imagine, you know, you're the voice of the other side. Yeah, quite a lot. Um, why, why are you so passionate about doing that and talking about the topic? Yeah, I think it's so important that we deal with real, the real threats to wildlife. And when we're talking about conservation issues, that if the aim is conservation, then it should be that decisions are really evidence-based and informed on conservation threats. So it's something that evolved over time. Like, I am a vegetarian. I've never killed anything for fun. I would. It's just not who I am. I can't understand that. So I don't come at this from any kind of hunting element. But when I've spent all this time out in the field, the amount of killing we were seeing on unprotected land was between 50 and 100 times higher what was happening, what would be happening or would be allowed in a trophy hunting area for lions. So I was seeing this massive threat that largely went Mm. unremarked and was hugely detrimental to lions. And then when I would come out of the field, you would see everyone was just talking about trophy hunting. And it seemed a huge amount of attention for something that not only is not one of the major threats to lions, but also protects vast areas. More lion range is covered in national parks, covered in trophy hunting areas. So this threat that if you take away lion trophy hunting, if you ban it, if you make that land use economically non-viable, the huge likelihood is that you're going to end up with it unprotected, with it being converted to farming, to agriculture. And then you'll see the kinds of killings that we see all the time. They won't be on social media, you won't have the campaigns about them, but they will be more damaging for conservation. So I started to speak up about it saying, hang on, we should sort of recalibrate this. We should be looking at the major threats to lions, things like habitat loss, conflict, as you say. And if we don't have a better alternative, and one that's locally accepted and one that reduces the amount of wildlife killing than trophy hunting, then it's better to maintain that wildlife-based land use than risk it um, being converted. And so I thought it was a reasonably middle ground, a fairly sensible sort of approach. <laughs> but I soon learned that not everyone shared that view. So uh, I didn't realise quite how contentious it would get. But it has been, I think it's an important one to bring up and say nothing is as simple as it first appears. And we need to be very careful about unintended consequences. A lot of people talk about the, you know, the alternative and say there are alternatives. You know, you look at ecotourism and even from my you know, minuscule amount of research, I find it quite an easy thing to understand that, yeah, ecotourism is a thing, but it can't be a thing everywhere. And then people battle to say there is alternatives, but that, I mean, what do you, what do you, how do you reply to that when people are saying there are alternatives and these can replace trophy hunting? Well, I think the first thing to say is that when we've looked at this at lion range level, I mean, it takes probably at least a billion dollars a year to protect a lion range or protect the protected areas in line range at least. And even with all the existing funding from photo tourism, from trophy hunting, from donor aid, from state aid, we have a huge shortfall, probably over $600 million of shortfall already. So unless we have those alternatives ready and waiting, 
to safeguard these vast areas, it seems completely foolhardy to take away one of those existing revenue streams. Even if it isn't a particularly large one, it can be very significant for those parcels of land. So when people say there are alternatives, I'm like, great, I would personally, on just a personal level, love to see a different alternative that doesn't rely yeah. on the killing of animals. Because that kind of depresses me that this is why people pay for it, to kill an animal. I mean, it doesn't sit well with me just on a personal level, but it's not about me. But if that... If that alternative is ready, then great, let's see it. But what we are seeing more and more is the hunting blocks in places like Tanzania are becoming less viable, they're being handed back, and then nothing is coming in to replace them in many of the cases. And so this land is getting more degraded. You are having more things like bushmeat snaring. We are seeing this on the ground. So I think the alternative's great if they can happen, but the alternatives need to critically be things that have a real incentive for maintaining habitats and the presence of dangerous wildlife. And actually, relatively few land uses do that. Photo tourism does, trophy mm. hunting does, maybe payments for presence. But rather than just talk about these things, we have to see them being implemented at scale. And that is not happening at the moment. So it needs to be accelerated. If, if people say they are there, then we need to see them in the field, not see them talked about on social media. How come the trophy hunting sites have been given up in Tanzania? Is that a law change or a legislation change? No, so a lot of uh, hunting organisations are just saying that it's not, or the operators are saying that it's not viable anymore, particularly since the restrictions in the US on elephants and lion imports there. Mm. The growing sort of pressure on hunting has sort of diminished the market, which is the intention of a lot of these import bans, is to try to stifle the activity. And it's working to some extent. Of course, there's lots of discussion about the fact that were these areas declining anyway? What was happening? But from the operator's point of view, these import bans have certainly had an impact and then are making it less financially viable. So at that point, they just it's not worth this running it anymore at effectively a loss as they will hand them back to the government. And then the government cannot have the capacity to manage these vast areas. And then effectively, they just don't get managed. And so then we are seeing from these areas that aren't managed that having some form of management is key. And whether that management comes from a trophy hunter or a photo yeah. tourism operator of the government, but it needs to be managed or you're going to have these increasing risks of things like snaring or land conversion yeah. in an unregulated way. And we talk about that just after our government has committed to, with a degree of, <laughs> I don't know, uncertainty, as our government likes to do, but have agreed to ban some form of imports of trophy hunting goods as well. Well, yes, this has been a really interesting discussion, saying that the majority of the British public want to see a ban on trophy hunting. I think if that's the case, then we should ban it domestically first. So let's do mm. it on our land, where we are going to bear <laughs> yes. all the sort of debates and the costs and the benefits and whatever. That's fine. I have no problem with that. I do have yeah. an issue with the UK saying, well, let's ban it because people hate it, but let's not ban it here. Let's just ban the imports. And then that un mm. undermines, to my point of view, the conservation choices of people elsewhere. And I think it's very important to give other people those rights to manage their wildlife. Often the countries that are using this are far, far better than the UK in terms of managing wild areas and wildlife. And so we shouldn't be looking to undermine it. In fact, the IUCN has very clear rules or guidelines on this saying, before you do even import bans, you should have proper consultations, you should fund these better alternatives, you should have figured out the exact dynamics here. And that isn't really happening. So I don't think we want this very populist response. And I'm slightly heartened at the moment, and this all may change, there is some nuance in that saying, we want to ensure that the imports and the exports don't undermine the conservation of species. And I think if we're all agreeing that this is about conservation, great. That should mm. literally please all sides. But having seen the negative reaction of some groups towards that, it's interesting because then is it not about conservation? Because yeah. if it is about conservation, then that should please everyone. If it's not about conservation, it's just that you personally don't like the idea of trophy hunting or you don't like trophy hunters, 
that's understandable on a personal level, but it shouldn't necessarily be what guides um, our policy from a sort of conservation decision making level. Because, yeah, I saw that today saying like 80, was it 86 percent? they said of the British public. Yeah, I think it was 85 or 86%, 86%, yeah. I think 85 or 86% of the British public just don't like an African animal being killed. That's it. Definitely, and I think I, that's fine. That is totally fine, but you don't get to choose what happens in Africa. And I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I started to look <laughs> yeah. at some of these, and I didn't look at the 86% one, but I looked at the original poll that said that 75% of Britons don't like trophy hunting. For instance, it was an extremely leading question. It basically just said that some groups think that it's cruel and they think that it's endangering species. Do you think it should happen? If that's the information you're presented with, unsurprisingly, yeah. you're not going to like it. I think if you recognise that it's much more nuanced, that that it may be killing animals. Of course, trophy hunting kills animals. But equally, that if you took it away without a better alternative ready, far more animals could die. I don't think the British public would want that to be the outcome. And I think that's what we need to drill down to. My aim in all of these discussions is to minimise overall wildlife killing. And so if the land use that delivers that ironically is trophy hunting, so you have a small number of regulated kills rather than a lot of unregulated killing, then I would take the trophy hunting because that fits my goal, which is to minimise wildlife killing. If somebody else's goal is just to say, I don't like trophy hunting regardless, regardless of the conservation or habitat or anything else, then that's understandable. But I think we should be transparent about these different mm discussions and debates and standpoints people are coming from and also not undermine other people's rights to manage their land but this is it isn't it because like what i mean we're only what 25 countries away from the bottom on the worst biodiversity list and i'm pretty sure there's some a lot of african countries that are not near the bottom i know <laughs> so I know. why should we be sad hits to pig going lads you're doing it wrong <laughs> well, exactly it was interesting so i think those i just saw those g7 commitments that came out and you know the uk is playing a leading role in this at the moment and the very first one is that well, they're talking about the need for evidence-based policy making so that's great to see the recognition and later on it talks about the need to engage and empower local communities and indigenous people and make sure that nobody is left behind in these decisions. So I think if those are our guiding principles, which they should be, then we have to look at this from what is the evidence in terms of does this mitigate bigger threats? So trophy hunting can be a small threat to some populations. It can be absolutely, it can be a big threat to some particular populations if it's managed very badly. But overall, is it doing better or worse than if you took it away? And that very mm. much depends on what the alternative would be. And if the alternative is land conversion, which in most places it would be, then then the trophy hunting is probably reducing the bigger threats of land conversion. So it's a, it's a much more nuanced issue than, than people realise. So let's. I'm going to bring up a word I don't like <laughs> in regards to this topic, but people will say it's unethical. <laughs> How do you react to that? I think that tends to come from a position of more privilege, to be totally honest. I think... If you are vegan, which I believe you are, so this can, you know, you I might say it's, un, it's unethical. Let the record show that Amy brought that up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so if you just think that it's totally unacceptable to kill an animal and that goes with your personal belief system, that's fine. Mm. And I can completely understand that. But the African countries there, they will want to use those animals, not least for the meat. So if you kill something like an elephant and you're providing meat from it, I think it's not, you know, why is that ethically different from killing another animal for meat? So I think there's an interesting thing to unpick there. Mm. And I think also if you're talking about the cruelty aspect, and again, it's it's down to these comparisons of things. If you have an animal that lives for 50 years, you've got an elephant wandering around out there in the bush and then gets shot, and it takes a couple of minutes to die, that to me is actually more ethical than having an animal in a factory farm in the UK. And so there are all these things about what position you're coming to it from. And people will say, well, 
you know, it's it's okay if it's done for me, but it's not okay if you're enjoying it. And that's the point that people find unethical is the enjoyment. For me, I'm very much like the animal doesn't know why the emotions of the person pulling the trigger. What matters to the animal is how quickly it dies and how painfully or painlessly it dies and how many mm-hmm. animals go through that fate. So again, for me, I'm looking at minimising overall wildlife killings and minimising the pain and suffering that animals go through. And if it ends up being that trophy hunting bans increase the number of wildlife being killed, and if they increase the pain and suffering of those animals, to me, that is not an ethical choice. And it's particularly not an ethical choice to take away, again, those rights and the meat and the benefits of the communities who've decided they want that to be part of their management just because we decide in the West that it's something we don't like. So I don't really buy that it's about the ethics unless we really unpick those different elements of it Mm. and uh, to bring it back to lions with this cecil the lion yeah i've heard stories to say that that was misreported like what what happened there why was that such a big story or was was there elements that were missed out or twisted i think the reason it was a big story i mean it's it's often that sort of just congruence of lots of factors that make it a media hit at the time. So many lions get killed in Wangi National Park. I think there were over 40 that might have been killed even before Cecil killed in the, in the length of the study that had been going on about monitoring these animals. So it wasn't unusual that a male lion was trophy hunted. I think there was a combination of things like he was bow hunted. He obviously took a long time to die. He needed to be tracked the next day. The the legality of it seems extremely great. And I think it seems like, from my understanding of it, and you hear many different accounts, that there wasn't a permit on that land, which would make it an illegal mm. hunt. But really, again, this illegality that happens, what really propelled that forward was the fact that it was a well-known lion, apparently, so that it was a named lion, it was a known lion. And that always mm. comes with this sort of a, a history and a narrative. And of course, because Jimmy Kimmel then heard about it and made this big, um, sort of very emotional plea and very well-intentioned plea on... A TV and sort of primetime American TV talking about it. So it really just galvanised attention that this was happening and it suddenly took off incredible public interest and awareness. But personally, from my point of view, I would like to see that directed at saying, if we've got all this global and international passion for lions, that's wonderful. Let's harness it to really do what we need to do, which is secure big areas for lions yeah. in a way that empowers local people <clears throat> and makes the presence of lions and other wildlife the driver of human developments in a way that is respectful and sustainable. So I think people, it showed that people want lions. That's wonderful that people mm. want lions. But I, it, the fact that it just became about trophy hunting and a very sort of surface level understanding of this has unfortunately become quite damaging in terms of some of the policies that have been now pushed forward under that. Uh, so like, <laughs> I'm trying to think what to say about it because I, whenever I talk to someone about it, um, they always go, well, Cecil the lion. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, well, that was illegal. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. I've not, I've not researched enough about the story. Yeah. You know, you can, I, I guess my reply usually is, yeah, there's going to be people among a group of people. There's always people. You know, take any group in the world, there's always a person in there. It felt like that story was used to twist a narrative. I don't know if I'm right there. Or- no, I think you're totally right. It was used to push a narrative. This is totally unacceptable and unethical in today's world. I think... And the voices then of the people who are deciding to do that and saying, actually, if you're talking about this being some, you know, colonial history and this shouldn't happen anymore, mm. they're like, what is colonial? Is Westerners telling Africans what to do and disempowering <laughs> them? So maybe you should listen to us. It's almost a parody, isn't it? And it literally is almost a parody. And there was an amazing New York Times column that happened by this guy called Nzu, I think, who was 
just in really well written. It said America, you know, why America is basically crying for lions. They're not crying for the Zimbabweans killed by lions. And all this attention on an animal versus the attention that people have lived with these and have the costs and deal with all the issues around living with lions and other wildlife. And I do think it's incredibly dismissive of Africans and of everyone else who lives with big, dangerous animals to sort of to impose these decisions from outside. Yeah. And if you look at what happened with Cecil, yes, there was illegality, I believe, around it. But it doesn't mean, for instance, that there's illegality around shoplifting and shopping, you know, but you don't take away an entire <laughs> revenue stream because there are people yeah. who break the rules. You deal with the rule breakers and you deal with enforcement and you you sort of tighten that. So I don't mm. think that in itself is a reason to take it away. He was also an old male. Like if you are going to take away a male, then it is easier to take away a male of that age that will have much less impact on the population. In fact, his cubs survived. Then if you're taking away the kinds of animals that we see killed in poison and conflict, which are often, as I said, these females that are pregnant, yeah. the younger ones. Yeah. So it's really, really a lot more complicated as usual. Well, as we say a lot on Into the Wild here, for the listeners, guys, do your research. Um, read as much as you can and not from the same publication all the time. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> from Definitely. Multiple, multiple places. My last question for you, Amy, is the hardest one. If you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? It's funny because you've just totally stolen my thing, which is going to be to get informed. And oh, was really, it? Yeah, so it really is. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I'm just, I'm just copying your answer now. I really think <laughs> it's good we're on the same page. But it's just, it is so important, you know, to use that passion that we have mm. for wildlife and to nature, but to channel it in a way that is responsible and informed. Mm. So, you know, you might be really passionate about something like lions and then really be concerned about something like trophy hunting, but read around it. Think about what's actually going on and listen to grassroots organisations that are out there yeah. in the place and with the species you're concerned about, listening to the local people who live with the species. So I think that understanding and really going down, dialing down, looking in depth and looking at grassroots, I think is going to be the way forward to say to people, just get more informed. And then the information and the passion can take us forward and be really positive, hopefully. Amazing. Amy, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. A pleasure to chat to you. I will now promise to get you your Into the Wild mug Yay. that I've been promising. <laughs> No, I've been promising for several months now, um, but it will be on its way. <laughs> um, cool. It's a pleasure to talk to you, mate. And I'm so glad you're getting back into the offices and hopefully you can get back to Africa soon and start the, the groundwork again. Definitely, definitely. I'll go back and see. They've done a great job of keeping it going and I'm looking forward to going back. Cool. Amazing. Thank you, mate. Great Take to see you, Ryan. Cheers. Bye. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Amy is working on, then you can do so on social media. Her tags are in the write-up of this show. You can also get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media, intothewildpod on Twitter and intothewildpodcast on Instagram. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild aims to always be a free show, however running it and producing it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, you can do so by buying me a coffee. My Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. But until next time, nature nerds, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.